All right. Well, it's great to be with you all today. My name is Tyler Bacher. I'm the high school lead here at New Hope Church. And let me disappoint you right away. I can't do a handstand. I can't even stand on my head. If I tried to do it, I would break myself. Although my daughter can do a somersault, so maybe I'll have her do that in the second service. She can help us out with that. But like the video is saying, we're shaking things up just a little bit this morning. We're changing things around. So if you're hanging out in the lobby, you can come on in. We're going to get started here today. And, and I guess the spirit behind this is this. Like our, our rituals, our habits, our rhythms are, are really important. But sometimes shaking things up, doing things a little bit differently lets us see them in a, in a clearer light, like see them for what they are again, um, and, and be able to, you know, evaluate and see what's really important in what we do together. So as we flip everything around, just know this, we will sing together, we will be together, but we're starting in the passage first today. But before we get there, here's the story so far. We've been in the book of Nehemiah, and Nehemiah the, the title character, has been called by God to leave his position for a time as the cupbearer to the king of Persia to go build the walls of Jerusalem again. The people had been returning from exile, but were scattered and disgraced. So through prayer and intimacy with God, Nehemiah requests to be sent by the king to do this task. He's sent, he faces like dissenters and naysayers all along the way, but eventually the job gets done, the wall gets built. But through it all, Nehemiah was only like kept going through the sustaining power of his relationship with God. Only through prayer and intimacy and sincere experience with God did he get where he needed to go. And that brings us to our passage today, Nehemiah 7 which has surprisingly little going on in it. Like, there is, there is just not a lot here. Basically, it starts with them finishing the wall. They put the final touches on it. Yay, like Jerusalem's safe. Everybody is excited. And they look behind them and they see there's still a problem because Jerusalem is a ghost town. There aren't a lot of people left because while people had been coming back from exile, they had been scattered. They hadn't been settling together. So, in kind of the, still the beginning of Nehemiah 7, Nehemiah gets out a book, a scroll, if you will, of who had come back. And that's basically the rest of chapter 7, a really, really detailed list. So, for the sake of our time together, let me give a final summary. A lot of folks came back. Some of them could be priests. Along with them came camels and donkeys and mules and singers, and they brought some money too. There ends the reading of God's word. Have a great week. <laughs> I get a little bit, but honestly, that's where it ends. Like here, the people are back in the land. Come back next week to see what they do together. That's Nehemiah 7. So this does, though, give us an opportunity to take a time out for a moment, to pause, to sit here and ask why. Why is this the next step to bring a community back together? Why does God insist on community? Why is he always in this work of bringing people back together? Because throughout like biblical history and church history up until the present, we see like the people of God fail like time and time and time again. An endless string of God having to discipline his people because they've messed up so much. It seems like a lot of trouble. And yet, we see God 
throughout this, reform his people time and time and time again. We see at the very beginning that he says that it's not good for man to be alone. We see him like start the people of Israel and keep it going for generations. We see Jesus talk about bringing his people together, a people that will follow him. We see Paul constantly talking about the unity of the body and how important it is to have that. We see the author of Hebrews say, keep meeting together so that we can spur one another towards love and good deeds. And the final picture we see at the end of scripture is a group of people gathered together every tribe, tongue, and nation, praising God as a group together. Why? Why does God insist from start to end on a community? We might be tempted to say something down the lines of like, so, so God's glory could be revealed in the world, or that together we could do more or something like that. And I'm not saying that's not true. That could very well be true. But those also seems like things we could do individually. Like, the story of Nehemiah so far has been mostly just him and God. The story didn't start with Nehemiah and his five closest friends just doing life together. Like, it's been him and God, and God's been telling him what to do. And he gets help along the way, but it's not really like the people of God surrounded him and, and lifted him up. So there must be things that being together as a community does uniquely. Otherwise, why wouldn't God just keep raising up really great individuals like Nehemiah. Just every generation gets a Nehemiah and everything else kind of gets figured out. Well, I have a few ideas. I'm sure there's a lot more, but we'd run out of time. So please, if you have some thoughts, I'd love to hear them afterwards. But for now, here's three ideas as to why God insists on community for his people. The first is the easiest. It's the baseline. The reason God insists on community for his people is just simply because we really need each other. God speaks to this at the very beginning in Genesis 2.18 when he says, it's not good for man to be alone. Fundamentally, like baseline bedrock level, we are made to be together and not alone. We are made to have relationships with each other. We need it to such a degree that when, it miss, when it's missing, it really, really hurts. Just think about your own experience for a minute. Like how much of the hurt or worry or anxiety or moments that you don't look like Jesus, like in your life, come from, if we really drill down, the fear of being alone or the actual experience of being alone. And now we need to recognize that's not just our anecdotal experience. Like, in addressing the severe levels and numbers of people experiencing loneliness in our country, last year the Surgeon General stated that loneliness poses the health risks of smoking up to 15 cigarettes a day. Let's say that again. The outcomes of loneliness can be the same as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. I think it's safe to say we need each other at a baseline level, and that God keeps calling his people together because he knows we really, really need it. In fact, we were made for it. So that's the easiest one. Let's look at a couple more. Another reason God insists on community for his people is that he knows we need each other to bear one another's burdens, to help lift each other up when we're dealing with stuff from, from just kind of unpleasant things to the darkest nights of our souls. Paul sums it up in Galatians 2 when he says this, carry one another's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Jesus summarized the law as loving God and loving our neighbor as ourselves, so we can easily see how carrying each other's burdens kind of fits into that framework. 
And the reality is this. It's really hard, if not impossible, to face the struggles of life on our own. Whether they're emotional or physical traumas, relational strife, tangible needs, or just whatever is weighing us down, we need the people of God to surround us to ease the load. My son was in the hospital for a couple days in January. It wasn't super serious. He had RSV and he got just a ton of like uh, of nebulizers and stuff to make sure that he could keep breathing just fine. He's, he is okay. But in that moment, I was on tilt. In that moment, I was messed up emotionally for a variety of reasons we don't have time getting into. I felt alone and scared and entirely unsure of what I should be doing in that moment. As my wife is with him in the hospital, my daughter's asleep in another room, and I'm sitting on the couch, like, my hands, like, under me, just like, I I don't even know how to move. But it was the people of God throughout those couple days, who texted me that they were praying and checking in, or took care of my daughter so that I could go help with my son, or who brought us a meal or sent us a Grubhub gift card or whatever, who brought me back, who showed me that I wasn't only like not alone, but also that God was still there too. Like when I didn't have the words to talk with God because I was so wrapped in anxiety and I could hardly move, It was through his people that I experienced not only his love, but the fact that he was still with me. And we can be that for each other. When the cancer comes, when depression hits, when the kids won't sleep, when we need food on the table, when we're just in a funk, we need each other. To not be alone, to have our needs met, and to ultimately experience God better too. And that kind of ties into the last reason God insists on having his people form a community. And that's because we can't become like Jesus or fully experience God without each other. Now, that might seem a little obvious, but if we start digging in, it's amazing just how much we actually really do need each other. But to do so, buckle up, we're taking a little detour into brain science. So just bear with me. We're getting off the road, we're coming back to the road, I promise. But as a quick note, this is more of a crash course than just skimming the surface. If you want more, I can't more highly recommend Jim Wilder's book, Renovated. A lot of what I'm about to say is summarizing his findings there. So, brain science, stay with me on the detour. Different parts of our brains are responsible for the different parts of like what makes us the people we are. In an oversimplified way, we can split the responsibilities we're talking about today between the left brain and the right brain. The left brain is the slow track in that it receives stimulus later and processes overall slower. Therefore, it focuses on specific things instead of everything going on all at once. Contained in this left part of our brain is our conscious thoughts. It's also where what we've learned is stored, like a factual database that our conscious thoughts pull from. Our conscious thoughts and this factual database work together to problem solve. I'm getting ahead of myself, but when our right brain comes across something it doesn't understand what to do with, it kicks it over to our conscious like thoughts left brain and says, hey, figure it out. I don't know what this is. So our left brain helps to formulate strategies. It helps us to focus on exploring our world, that kind of stuff. That's our left brain conscious thought stuff. The right brain, though, is the fast track. Stimulus enters there first, and it allows us to respond to it without conscious thought. 
It's what allows us to drive a car. Like, how many of you guys have been driving down the road and get 10 miles down the road and all of a sudden, like, snap to attention? Like, oh my gosh, where am I? That's your right brain saying, hey man, you're good. I know how to drive a car. Like, you keep thinking about what you're thinking about over there. So our right brain is taking in everything and responding to a lot of things we never even think about. Is that sound dangerous? What am I looking at right now? That never even makes it into conscious thought. We're just doing it, that kind of stuff. But it also responds to things that we consciously think about immediately after. Maybe we have like a flash of anger that we then realize wasn't that big of a deal. Or maybe we have a jump scare in a movie when we realize like it was just a toy, that kind of stuff. So it's running all of the stimulus that we receive, receive, everything, everywhere, all at once, against its own database, a separate database from our knowledge one over here in the slow track. This fast track database is our identity. It is who we are in that it dictates how we impulsively respond to our world. Our identity database even dictates the range of options given to our left brain to problem solve with. Like I was saying earlier, when, when something comes up that the right brain doesn't understand, it kicks it down. Well, like let's say someone after the service comes up to me and says, you're a heretic and your face is dumb. My right brain doesn't know what to do with that. So it kicks it down to my left brain, but it gives parameters on what I can problem solve with. It says murder isn't an option, but like loving that person probably isn't either. <laughs> That's the range we're dealing with. So maybe we're starting to see how these different parts of the brain can work together and also come into really stark like, conflict with each other. And this conflict starts to look like this. Our left brain, ever-seeking knowledge and strategy-making and problem-solving, can know what it should do. We can be resolved consciously about something we need to do in our lives. But even if that's the case, it's not in our right brain identity that makes up how we respond to stuff. The identity base dictates how we respond. It's who we actually are and not just our good intentions. So we get this weird loop of intending to do the right thing, having consciously said, I will do this, and maybe even doing that sometimes. But when the chips are down, our right brain identity says, that's not who I am, and acts in a way that frustrates what the left brain wanted. See this kind of vicious cycle that we've probably all felt in our lives. Some examples though, because that's kind of intangible. My relationship with Taco Bell is the perfect example of this. My left brain knows it's bad for me. My left brain knows it's probably not that good. My left brain says to say no. But my right brain says, I'm a Taco Bell person and I'm back in the drive-thru lane. See, like, that's the problem. My, my core, like, belief that I have come to realize, which is I should value my health, hasn't been put in my right brain identity enough to not make the decision. Or those of you who are parents have probably run into this when you're trying to not snap at your kids. Listen, I know that, like, raising your voice and snapping at a kid isn't gonna help. I know it's not even right to do. I know that I want to be a peaceful presence in my child's life. And then they spike a toy against the TV and I snap. And I immediately regret it and I apologize and I realize I have some work to do bringing this belief that I need to be a peaceful presence for my children into my actual like identity practice in the right brain. And if we expand the scope of who we want to be in our identity to be becoming like Jesus, I think we'd all say we have work to do. 
Like, and if becoming like Jesus looks like what Dallas Willard says, which is to be able to spontaneously respond to our enemies in love, to respond to our enemies spontaneously in love, man, I have a long road ahead of me. So the question becomes this, how do we get being like Jesus into our right brain fast track identity databases? Though the thing is, learning just isn't gonna do it. Our knowledge database is in our left brain slow track. Now hear me, learning is really important. We aren't gonna make good decisions or make good strategies with bad information, but we have to understand that gaining knowledge bolsters the slow track left brain. It helps us to rightly or think rightly and tells us what needs to change, but is really bad at actualizing that change, bringing it out in how we actually respond in our world. So, if we want a successful strategy in becoming like Jesus, we have to target the right parts of our brain that actually change how we respond. So, this has been the brain science detour. We're getting back on the main road now because there are two things that are remarkably good at getting being like Jesus into the fast track. The first is having a secure attachment with God. The second is having a secure attachment with his people. To define terms real quick, a secure or loving attachment is first formed ideally with our parents before we can remember anything. To quote Jim Wilder, attachment begins with grace, being the sparkle of joy in someone's eye. This sparks and builds joy in us. Someone's really glad to be with us, and that starts kind of making us feel the same. We carry the need for these kind of relationships throughout our entire lives. And these kind of relationships allow for those involved to influence each other's fast-track right-brain identities. And this happens even at like a non-verbal level. Like, have you ever looked at a good friend or spouse and known exactly what they were thinking? Those moments not only show that you have a loving or secure attachment, but also that they shape our right-brain fast-track identities. As an example, like when we're at a dinner table with a bunch of people and my wife Chloe looks at me and I know what she's saying is, shut up. (laughs) Not only am I taking in the communication that like, hey, don't dominate table talk, but it's also actually training my right brain saying, we're a people who don't dominate conversation at the table. So backing up, how do we get becoming like Jesus into a right brain fast track? through experiencing a secure and loving attachment with God first. Not just knowing about God in our left brain, but actually experiencing God, the person interacting with him in the right. We need practices that help imagining him delighting in us and that he's so glad to be with us in all things and recognizing that he actually is. We need practices that help to establish something like nonverbal communication with God so that as we're running in our fast track, we're taking cues from him that will shape what that looks like and make our identities look like him. But the reality is this. There's a lot that stands in the way of experiencing God like that. Past trauma, current trauma, our current mood, just the difficulty of describing that and conceptualizing that to people. There's a lot of barriers to having a secure attachment with God. Absolutely worth pursuing. Perhaps the most important thing we can do, but a lot of barriers to getting there. Thankfully, God has given us another way into the fast track, a secure and loving attachment with his people. 
At around 12 years old, our brains have matured enough to think beyond self-preservation. In fact, a bunch of brain cells die at that point with the effect that that we see the survival of our group as more important than our own survival. Which means that when we are with people that our brain identifies as our people, we are remarkably influenced by them. Now, I guess that's good and bad, right? Like, if, you, if your people are a bunch of flat earthers, it's going to be really hard to come back to reality. But if your people are the people of God, when you are lovingly attached to people who are seeking to become like Jesus, we get to be the face of God to each other. We get to be the ones who build loving attachments with one another, ones that communicate, I'm so glad to be with you, that sparks joy in us. And then we get the opportunity to say, that's how God wants to be with you too, in such a more profound way. By simply being present with one another, we will indicate to each other, even non-verbally, what the people of God do. How we, as a people of God, respond in the world. What do we do when we come across an enemy? What do we do when we come across something that makes us mad? What do we do when there's something that is so crushing that we just don't know how to process it? What do we do when there's joy and celebration? What do we do in just everything in life? We learn from just being with each other. We get to be the loving attachment of, or to God's people for the community of new hope, too. As we go out into the world and our worlds, we get to build relationships through our entire lives that delight in our neighbors to show we actually like them. We really are glad to be with them. And in doing so, we can give a picture of what God sees, too. Ultimately, Being together as a community who loves and follows Jesus will shape our fast tracks to look like him too. But that only happens if we have loving, secure attachments with each other. And that only happens if we leave the time and the space for those kind of relationships to develop between us. So that's a really long-winded explanation for our need for community. God insists on his people being in community together because he knows, even at a biological level, we can't become like Jesus or experience him fully without each other. So I hope these reasons and more that we haven't talked about make it abundantly clear that we need each other. We really need each other. Like, as a baseline human need to not be alone to help bear each other's burdens, and to even experience God fully and become like him, we need each other. And we all need each other. To quote my friends from Texas, we need all (laughs) y'all. Hear me clearly. Older folks, let's say the bracket above Gen X. We need you. This body here, this sliver of the body of Christ needs you. By be, or we need you so that we can become like Jesus. And by being with us, you'll become like Jesus too. We need you to help bear our burdens and we will help bear yours. And I want you to know it's not just me saying this. I've talked to a bunch of students after we get a chance to all be together who say, that was really awesome. Like, I was really glad to be with them. Why don't we do that more? Know that they want to be with you too. And students, we, this body, need you too. Not just with the hope that you will become like Jesus, but because you will help us become like Jesus too. And not just because we need you to help bear our burdens, but because we want to help bear 
yours. And I want you to know that so many adults come to me whenever we get to be together and say, I was so encouraged, I was so filled with joy to be with students. They show me Jesus. Everybody in between, married, single, kids, no kids, a lot of kids, we need you to become like Jesus. We need you, and you need us too. We want to bear your burdens, and we need your help to bear ours. Run down the list of different ethnic or cultural or socioeconomic backgrounds, and we need you so that we can all become like Jesus. We need you so that all of our burdens can be carried together. We need each other. But it's so easy to split apart. It's so easy to just not take the time to welcome one another and to build loving attachments as a community, or just to let the hard things in life drive endless wedges between us. It's outside the scope of this morning to address how we keep together as a community, but I hope we can all see why it should be one of our top priorities to do so, why we have to be committed to this thing of being together, to do the work to make sure we get time together to be willing to disrupt our habits and rhythms that keep us apart and keep us from building loving and secure attachments with one another. To do so will require us to be creative, both like as a church body and us individually, to evaluate what we do, to make sure that the time of just being together gets the proper place it needs in our lives. So, in the spirit, we're gonna do a little something different before we sing together. Just a little fraction of a place to start. Because I'll admit, my habit on a Sunday morning currently is somehow get the kids here, stay for the service, go get them home before they get grumpy and get them some lunch. That's my habit often. But I think a lot of us can really easily fall into that habit. Like we get here, we do this thing, but then there's always something pulling us away. Like, oh, the Vikings. Well, maybe we don't want to watch them. But like, oh, the Vikings. Oh, we need lunch. Like there's stuff that keeps us going away. But this is a great place to start making connections and reinforcing them. When else are we all together like this? So, in a moment, we're going to set aside five minutes just to be together and talk to one another. I want you all to find someone close by. You might have to move and talk to them for a bit. Family members don't count. <laughs> okay, immediate family members don't count. If you don't know each other, just introduce yourself. Ask about each other's lives and get to know one another. If you do know each other, I'll have a prompt on the screen. You could talk about it. You cannot talk about it. I honestly don't care. Just talk. But make sure that you don't leave anybody out. Make sure that everyone has someone to talk to, including students. Find them. Ask them about their week, what they want to do, what sports they're a part of, what musical they just did. Talk to them too. And I have a note here. For all you introverts out there who are internally screaming at me right now, I know a few of you. I'm really sorry. But, but know, but know that you have my permission to excuse yourself early. We'll all be gracious for that. If your conversation is done, you can say before five minutes is up, hey, you know what? It was really good to be with you. I'm going to go sit back down. And, and we all understand. But for those of you who get cut off, maybe think about finishing that conversation when we're done with everything this morning. In fact, I think, like, that's my invitation to everyone this morning. Stay a while. Be with each other. Meet some new friends or touch base with some old ones. Let me pray, and we'll transition to that time. Father God, we thank you that we can 
we can be together, that, that you have made such an insistence on what you know we need, which is a community, that you know that we were made to be with each other, that you knew that we couldn't handle this life on our own, so you gave us each other, that we couldn't even become like you. We could never become like your son without learning from one another and growing with each other just by doing life together. So God, give us a moment to start that now. Give us a moment to make new connections or reconnect with others. Just be with us um, as we do that. In your name, amen.